Psalm 34. And I just uh, before we look at the psalm, I want to give you some context and explain why it was written. So to do that, I want us to go to the town of Gath. And I've marked it with an arrow on the slide there. And Gath, as you can see, is in the land of the Philistines. And I want you to imagine, if you can, this town of Gath with the merchants selling their wares in the local market in front of the shops, discussing the latest news and the latest gossip, and just having a regular day when they appeared. Now, any strangers showing up in Gath was a, a cause for excitement. But these guys, well, there was something frightening, something intense about them. You know, they looked like soldiers, they looked like warriors, and they were coming into town, looked like they'd had a, a mighty battle, or they'd been out in the field for a long time. They were dirty, disheveled, and kind of dangerous looking. But one thing was sure, wherever they had come from, they were clearly not Philistines. Yes, they were obviously soldiers, but there was something, you know, really odd about them. For none of them were carrying any of the equipment of soldiers. There was no shields, no weapons, no bows and arrows, no swords. Well, except for one man who had this huge sword. I, and it looked like it was no ordinary sword. The sword was massive. It was taller than the man who wore it on his belt. And you know the people of Gath thought, God, there's something oddly familiar about this sword. And then a, a murmur began to sweep through the, the village. That, that sword, it, it's, oh, it's that sword. And it began to dawn on the villagers where they had seen that sword before because that sword was unmistakable. For it was his sword, you know, the sword that once belonged to their hometown hero, the legendary champion of the land of the Philistines. It was the sword that belonged to Goliath of Gath. So how did this tired and dirty soldier come to possess Goliath's sword? For as far as everyone knew, in Gath, Goliath's sword had been given to a priest by the name of Ahimelech in the city of Nob. And once Goliath had been killed, that's where it was taken. And then it hits them. Is this, I mean, could this be? No, that's not possible. This, this can't be. No, he wouldn't have come to Goliath's hometown. For, for David, the killer of Goliath, that would be crazy to come to Gath. I mean, to march into Gath, wearing the very sword that David used to cut off the head of their hero, that's, I mean, no way, that's too crazy to think about. But who else could it be? It's clearly not a priest. So it can't be anyone else but David. And needless to say, word of David's arrival spread through Gath like wildfire. And as David and his men looked around, they noticed that the villagers' stares had turned from that of curiosity to recognition. And now it was growing to hostility. You see, David is being hunted by the very king he saved when he killed Goliath. And most of you probably know the story of David's rise to fame. 
started with David's defeat of Goliath, the giant of Gath, where armed with nothing but a slingshot and five smooth stones and his faith in God, he killed the giant. He cut off his own, off Goliath's head with his own sword. The one that he is now so foolishly wearing in Goliath's hometown. And after David killed Goliath, David becomes a sort of teenage sensation in Israel. The number one hit on all the music charts at the time was a song celebrating his stunning victory over the giant of Gath. The chorus went something like, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Probably an awesome rap it was. Okay, And everyone was singing this song, especially the woman. And King Saul is so jealous of David's growing popularity. So Saul makes several attempts to kill David's life. So David decides the smartest thing to do is to run and leave. So for several years, David has lived as a fugitive with a price on his head. He's never had a moment's peace. He's always looking over his shoulder, always wondering if someone has sold him out or would betray him. He's always on the run, always wondering if Saul was waiting to ambush him and his men. And he's thinking, if only I could catch a break. If only there was some place I could stop, catch my breath, collect my thoughts, come up with a new plan. And David thinks, I've got it. I'll go to Gath and hide out there. For no one in Gath knows what I look like. And nobody would think that I would do such a stupid and crazy thing as attempt to hide from King Saul in Gath where I killed their local hero. I mean, hiding in plain sight sort of idea. It's a great plan on paper. But of course, David is immediately arrested. And Achish, the the tribal king who ruled over Gath and the surrounding region, he couldn't believe his eyes when he saw David being dragged before him. He kind of says... And it's, this is 1 Samuel 21. Is this not David, the king of the land? And David realizes there is nothing but trouble ahead. And that he needs to come up with another plan. And he needs to come up with this, a new plan quick. For coming to Gath was crazy. Ah, so maybe acting crazy will get me out of trouble in Gath. And that's exactly what David does. David acts crazy. He pretends he's mad, insane. And he begins to growl and spit and babble incoherently. He runs around the courtyard and begins clawing at the doors of the king's palace like a wild animal caught in a trap. And he is such a pitiful sight that this great warrior, David, is now acting like the town idiot. And actually, I think the town idiot is even embarrassed of David's behavior. And David's plan to act insane and crazy is is working. For seeing this one great warrior acting like a rabid dog, King Ashish says, and you can find it in 1 Samuel 21, he says, look at this raving madman. 
This idiot, this raving fool, he's no threat to me. Get him out of my sight now. If I want to watch an idiot drool on himself, I've got dozens of them right outside my own gate. Shame on you for bringing this spectacle of a man into my house. I can barely stomach the sight of him. Take him outside the city and let him die. So David manages to escape. And he goes babbling and drooling and growling off into the distance. And once again, David finds himself sitting around a campfire in a cave. And David, he takes the time to reflect on what has just happened. And that is when he writes Psalm 34. And Psalm 34, it can be split into two sections. The first 10 verses are a hymn. And the last 12 are a sermon that he is teaching. And I just want us to focus on the hymn part this morning. So let us read Psalm 34 verses 1 to 10. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called. And the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord you holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry. But those who seek the Lord lack nothing. No good thing. So before we just come to unpack what David is saying, let's just uh, quickly pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that something that was written thousands of years ago can still be so relevant today. Lord, I ask that you will speak to us today, that you will meet our needs, whatever that is. And Lord, you know that I'm such a a simple man with such simple thoughts. I pray that what I have prepared, meager as it is, will be a feast for our souls. Amen. Hopefully on the screen... You can see a photo of me with my my granny. And sadly, my gran is no longer with us. For if she was, I would have got her to record a a phrase I I can still hear her say so clearly. You know, she used to say when somebody was hurt or upset, she would say, Oh, what a poor wee laddie. Oh, what a poor wee lassie. Oh, what a poor wee soul. And when I read verse 6 of this psalm, where it says, This poor man called, I cannot help but hear my gran say, Oh, David, what a poor wee soul. 
And this is David's experience. Oh, David, you're a poor wee soul. And you know what I mean by that, don't you? I'm not talking that he's poor in money. Because it's possible to have a lot of money and yet still be a poor wee soul. And David is saying he's a poor man because he feels as though he's got nothing. That he's got nothing left in his life. That he's a oh, a poor wee soul. And this man, he feels in his life that he's no energy left. That he's so tired. This man in his life feels that he's no will left. No will to pick up his life and begin all over again. This man in his life feels that he's no inner resources left. No self-respect left. No self-esteem left. This man in his life feels that he has no close friends or family left to whom he can talk to and just share the things of his life. He feels as though he's just a... Oh, a poor wee soul. He feels as though he's got nothing, nothing left. But actually, verse 4 tells us he has got something left. Verse 4, you will notice, he speaks about, and in that little phrase, all his fears. He, feel, he feels as though he's got nothing left except his fears and all his fears, he's got plenty of those. Fears which stop him sleeping at night. Fears which make his heart beat so painfully loud in his ears. Fears which even when he does sleep seem to be with him and haunting him in his dreams. Fears which wake him up suddenly. Fears which when he wakes up, immediately flood his mind. He's got fears about the past. He's got fears about the future. He's got fears about the present. He's got fears of change. Fears that things will not change but will simply go on this way forever. He's got fears of what people will say about him. Fears about what people will do to him. Oh, he's, he's a poor soul. He feels he's got nothing left, nothing but all his fears. And you know that's not all. Verse 6, it says he has his troubles, all his troubles. Again, that phrase, all his fears, all his troubles. For he's got plenty of troubles also. Troubles that don't just weigh him down. But read in verse 18. Troubles which have left him broken hearted and crushed in spirit. Troubles which squash him. Troubles which squeeze the very life, the very heart, the very resistance out of him. And maybe you feel like that this morning. You feel in your life you have nothing left. And you just don't think you can pick up the pieces and begin again. For you're done in. You feel oh, just like a poor soul. But what, what did he do? What 
did this poor man do? The first thing he did, and it's there in verse 6, is he called. We don't know what he said. Perhaps he only called out just one word. Perhaps that word was Lord. Perhaps the word was help. Perhaps the word was please. But he called on the Lord. And he was a poor soul. But poor souls can call on the Lord. He was a poor man, but poor men and women who feel they've got nothing left can call. And verse 6, when this poor man called, it says, The Lord heard him, and the Lord always hears the call of a poor soul. There has never been a poor soul who's called and the Lord has not heard. And maybe you're listening this morning and you feel you've got nothing left. Call on the Lord. He will hear you. Just call and even if your call is just one word. The Lord will hear you. The second thing he did is he looked. It's there in verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Verse 5. Now the psalmist at this moment in his life felt anything but radiant. Sometimes I think of when Claire says, are you happy? And I'm like, yes, I'm happy. And she's like, well, tell your face then. And maybe it's, it's like that. For he felt that the lights of his life round about him had gone out. He felt the light within him had been switched off. He felt that his face must give away how he was feeling. For his face was clouded, his face was darkened. His face was troubled. He felt anything but radiant. But as he called and as he looked to the Lord, something happened to his face. Something will have happened to his eyes. This morning, where are you looking? Are you looking inside yourself for help? Are you looking around about you for help? Verse 5 says, look to the Lord and something will happen to your face. For those who look to him are radiant. For as we look to the cross, we can see how much he loves us. When we look at the empty tomb, we see that he's not been defeated. And that is his living presence is here to help us. And when we look to his coming again, we know that he is in control of the world. And that somehow in God's mysterious power and wisdom, all things, all things work together for good for those that love God. And this... This poor man he called. This poor man looked. And thirdly in verse 8. This poor man he 
taste it. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. As many of you know, I, I, I love to cycle. And after a long cycle on a warm day, I love it when we have a, a, a wee cake stop. And that first drink of Coca-Cola for me on that cake stop, it's just amazing. I can hear the noise of the can as it opens. I can see the shake of the heads of others who are cycling with me because it's not healthy, I know. But I take that drink and I'm like, oh, that is heavenly. And one of the reasons I enjoy it so much is I'm so thirsty. And it's been a few hours since I last had anything but water and it's like I've forgotten how good something else or something like Coke tastes. And for some of us, it's been so long since we tasted of the Lord. It's been so long that we've forgotten how good the Lord tastes. We've forgotten just how good he tastes. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste of his pardon and discover the richness of this taste. Taste of his presence and the warmth of his love. Have you forgotten how good the Lord tastes? Taste him. And see that he is good. And God is good. And God is good to all. Matthew chapter 5 verse 45. Jesus said. God makes the sun rise on the good and the evil. And Jesus said. God sends a refreshing rain to the just and the unjust. And God is good to all. His goodness does not depend on us deserving or undeserving of that goodness. God is good to all. His goodness does not depend on my gratitude towards that goodness. God is just good. God is good to all. And God is good to you. Whoever you are this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a believer in God or not, God is good to you. You know, there are so many things in our lives that we can be thankful for. Maybe just take a moment in your mind to think of them. Make a mental list of all the ways in which God has been good to you. And when you think of that list of things you enjoy, of all the things you, you, you appreciate in life, maybe you could write in that mental list in your mind this little phrase of his goodness of his goodness our health and strength of his goodness 
our family and friends of his goodness, our homes, our jobs, our ability to work of his goodness, our food and our clothes of his goodness, our leisure, our fun, our laughter of his goodness, places to go now, books to read of his goodness, holidays to go, sun on our back, unless you're living in Scotland, of his goodness, the ability to accumulate knowledge of his goodness, the ability to appreciate beauty of his goodness, the gift of life itself, awareness, feeling, sensation, all from his goodness. And God is good to all and God has been good to you. And God is always good. God is always good because God is unchanging. God can never be anything else but good. For God's goodness does not vary in intensity. It does not vary in intensity. In other words, God is not just good to you today and then maybe tomorrow because it's a Monday a little less good to you and then maybe on a Tuesday that he might be a little bit more good to you. For God is always, only, utterly, every, all the time, completely good. God has never been more good to you this morning than he is. God will never be less good to you as a Christian than he is right now. For God's goodness is always the same. Oh, Peter, but it. My experience is a different thing, you might be saying. And you know, we doubt his goodness because we don't get what we want. We doubt his goodness and think he doesn't care for us because he doesn't jump to our every demand. You know, way back before I was married, believe it or not, there were some other girls I, I, I liked and prayed, Lord, let them be my wife. Wow, thankfully that did not happen. Because if we fast forward 30 years or so, what I thought when God did not answer that prayer, what I thought was a lack of his care and goodness, was actually his mysterious, very mysterious workings. For if he had answered yes, then I would have missed out on Claire, who is definitely a part of his mysterious good plan for my life. And yet sometimes God, God's goodness can appear like his disregard. That his lack of care, that his lack of love. Sometimes it can even feel like God's severity. You know, I was listening to a song this week. It's a reworked version of an old hymn from 1774. And its words are so beautiful. It says, deep in unfathomable minds 
of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind his frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Ye fierce You fearful saints, fresh courage, take the clouds you so much dread. Are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. God can never be anything but good to you he is always good and his goodness does not vary in intensity so this poor man he called he looked he tasted and in verse 8 it says this poor man he hid verse 8 it says blessed is the one who takes refuge in him David in his fears and in his troubles, feelings that he had nothing left, that he couldn't go on. He ran and hid himself in the Lord. You know, there are people, and I've had it said to me, that Christianity is just mere escapism. And that Christians are people who can't cope with the demands of life. And what can I say? It's true. We can't cope. With the demands of our sin. We can't cope with the demands of our sorrow. We can't cope with the sense of our loneliness. We can't cope with our anxieties. We can't cope with our fears. We cannot cope with the demands of life. And Christians are simply people who are honest enough to say. We can't cope. We know we can't. We know we will not find the answer in the bottle or in the Netflix or in the new relationship or in the holiday. We know that this sense of self-sufficiency that society teaches us is just an illusion. For Christians are people who say we can't cope and that we need a saviour. That we are drowning in life and we need a saviour. I, Pete, cannot cope. I am impaired. I am broken. I am crippled. I am lame. I need a savior. And so I hide in him. I hide in Jesus. And that's what conversion is. We discover we can't cope. And we hide in Christ and we prove the sufficiency of Christ in every situation. Knowing we cannot cope. But Christ is our saviour. 
And the poor soul, the poor wee soul, he knew he couldn't cope. And he didn't pretend he could. So he ran and he took refuge, he hid in the Lord. Wesley, the the great hymn writer, wrote, who wrote that hymn, Love Divine, O Love Excelling, was one day standing at his window. And he was looking out the window and he was watching a, a hawk. And this hawk was chasing a little sparrow across the sky. And the story, as Wesley says, is this sparrow was flying for its life, being chased by the great hawk. And as Wesley stood there at the open window, the sparrow came rushing in to the window and hid inside his jacket. And Wesley wrote a hymn about that. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. And we have to hide in him. Just think of how that little child who hides behind us, who hides in our arms, and how we hold them so they no longer feel ashamed, afraid, embarrassed. Come and hide in him. And lastly, it says he sang. This poor man who at one point in his life believed that he would never sing again. Who believed that his true singing days to the Lord were over. He sang. He praised. Verse 1 it says there, I will praise the Lord at all times. And why does he say at all times? He's saying because there are times when praising the Lord might seem unusual. It might seem that you're praising him at the least expected time. When we assume that praise might cease. Because it's a hard time. It's a dark time. And yet David, this poor man, having come through such dark times, says... I will bless the Lord at all times. Not just in the good times when praise is easy. Not just when all seems right with the world. Not just those times, but at all times. When I'm under threat. When it's hard. When it's uncertain. When it's painful, when I'm impatient and want all the pandemic and all the nonsense that comes with it to be over so we can get back to our normal life. When it's just dragging on and on and on. Then at that very moment, in the downs of life, in the trials, in the rain, in the pain, at all time, praise the Lord. And maybe... You're listening to the service. And maybe you struggle to sing the songs. Because now you've, this point in your life, you've never felt like singing less than right now. You feel that your heart will never sing again. That's how David felt. That his singing days were over. But he called, he looked, he tasted 
He hid. And then he sang. Maybe as Jonathan's going to play for us, just take a moment to be quiet. Just as Jonathan's playing, can just be helpful to put your hands out. And just call upon the Lord. A prayer doesn't have to be something fancy or complex. Just call out, help, please. Look to him. Look so something can happen to your face. Taste of the Lord and see that he is good. How long ago was it that you last tasted of the Lord? Have you forgotten how good he is? Taste. Hide in him. Take shelter. Take refuge in him. For you who sing. For you who think your singing days are over. God has a new song to put into your life. A new song. Just sit and listen to Jonathan, play. Call out to the Lord. Just call out to the Lord.